Hello and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Prochowski and I'm a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together we are bringing you A Future Made, a podcast by Harriet Watt University. In this series, we're finding out how pioneering research at Harriet Watt in the fields of science, business, technology, design and engineering is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today and make an impact on the global stage. This is truly pioneering research. This approach hasn't been conducted before. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the journey to net zero and how to capture carbon. We'll be hearing from academics in the university's School of Engineering and Physical Sciences who are working at the Research Centre for Carbon Solutions. So Anna, as a material scientist, I imagine you must know a thing or two about carbon capture storage. Yeah, so back in the day when I was studying for my degree, I did do some seminars on carbon capture and storage. And so I've got a relatively good idea about the the technologies that are involved, the materials that we're going to be talking about today, and really where it sits in our overall solution to this massive problem that we're facing, which is climate change. Yeah, this is quite a dense topic and you might have noticed that I am also quite dense, so you'll have to bear with me, but (laughs) industry is a huge emitter of global emissions and this can come from all sorts of sources, so power plants, industrial plants, energy intensive sectors. Um, And in this department at Heriot Watt University, they're working out what the CO2 source is, what are its characteristics and the destination of the CO2 once they've separated it from the gas in these industrial processes. And they then come up with a solution for what the best way is to separate the CO2. Exactly. And I think the whole point of this is that, yes, we need to reduce our emissions, but we also need to be trying to get as much of that carbon out of the atmosphere as possible. We need to be throwing absolutely everything that we've got at this. There's not going to be one single solution. To dig into these themes and get an inside idea of the research Harriet Watt University is doing in this area, I started by talking to research associate at the School of Engineering and Physical Science, Dr. Harathea Haralambos. So net zero can be achieved in two ways, by carbon offsetting and by reducing emissions. Balancing carbon dioxide emissions with carbon offsets is the process of reducing or avoiding greenhouse gas emissions or removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to make up for emissions elsewhere. So imagine if we have the total greenhouse gases emitted, if the total greenhouse gas emitted is equal to the total amount avoided or removed, then the two effects cancel each other out and the net emissions are neutral. There's this time aspect to this as well, right? So the stuff that we're emitting now will also need to be addressed (laughs) in terms of its carbon capture as well. We can't just um, kind of get away with the stuff that we're emitting now and then look forward to the future of being able to go net zero later. It all has to be taken into account. You know, the big activities that cause greenhouse gases are things like burning of fossil fuels, deforestation, land use, livestock production, fertilisation, waste management, industrial process, huge long list of things. Mm. But we sort of need to reduce those things first before we start to 
capture carbon and offset because they sort of happen in that sequence in net zero as opposed to being just carbon neutral which could mean that you just plant loads of forest but you still emit you know tons and tons of carbon right net zero actually means trying to trying to reduce your emissions first yeah i mean of course that makes a lot of sense right we shouldn't be relying on these technologies to be getting us out of the sticky situation that we've got ourselves into <laughs> So, Robbie, what are the ways in which we can actually move to this low carbon economy? Let's discuss that before we start discussing the offsetting and the carbon capture and storage. People will know about a lot of these already. You know, you can move from fossil fuels to renewables. You know, that's a, a huge one. But then there's also active travel because transport is a huge, you know, emitter of emissions. Most journeys in cars are done for like under around I think five kilometers mm. so you know you could cycle for most of those journeys and you know that's zero carbon travel right there and mm. um, you've got heating cooling and insulating our homes you know that's a really important one eating less carbon intensive food there's so many different ways that you can do this it's interesting though like this question of what the onus is on kind of us as the population and what the onus is on industry because my understanding is that industry their emissions kind of eclipse absolutely everything that we can do almost as individuals so um all the big list that you gave is like definitely brilliant but industry also need to be doing all of that stuff as well yeah i mean some of the stats are astounding so cement production if you just looked at the industrial processes used to make cement alone yeah. that accounts for eight percent of global co2 emissions yeah so that's bigger than any country apart from china and the us and that's just cement and part of that is because cement actually releases co2 as part of its process it's a little bit like you know beer or winemaking yeah. it's actually inherent in the process so you know it, it's really hard to reduce carbon emissions for example from that industry unless you actually move away from cement altogether to something like lime yeah that's so interesting and so we really do need this stuff as well as doing everything else Harathea's work involves finding solutions for removing CO2 from the atmosphere using CCUS, which is carbon capture, utilisation and storage. Here's Harathea to explain. It's a solution that prevents the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere by recovering carbon dioxide at the emitting facilities and then storing it or using it to make chemicals and fuels. Um, so carbon capture is the beginning of this chain. Uh, one has to capture the carbon dioxide, uh, purify it up to a certain concentration to be used in enhanced oil recovery and the manufacture of fuels, um, building materials and more, um, or be stored in uh, underground geologic formations. So there different methods of capturing carbon dioxide from concentrated streams. So there you go, Anna. I guess what she's getting at here is what happens to the carbon after it's been captured as well. So I'm not sure how clued up you are on all of that. Yeah, so it's basically describing that process of using materials as sponges that will kind of soak up all of the carbon in these dirty waste streams. But then obviously once you've got it in your sponge, you then need to do something useful with it. And carbon dioxide is, it is a useful substance for lots of industrial processes, but actually we are producing a lot more carbon dioxide as a waste gas than we actually need in 
these other industrial processes. So we have this excess of carbon dioxide that we can't really use. You know, there's only so much fizzy water we can all drink. So <laughs> after we've put the carbon dioxide in our fizzy water, then what do we do with it? Well, we can store it in all sorts of different ways. One of the ways they've looked to do that is to sort of pump it deep underground and have it held in spongy rocks forever. That's the idea, you know, to keep it down under there forever. Right, okay. So we can't all just drink loads of iron brew and coke and Fanta and fizzy juice <laughs> and expect all the carbon to go away. <laughs> I mean, that is one way that we can all do our bit to save the environment. But after we've all got sick of iron brew, then, then we need to be doing something else mm-hmm. with it. <laughs> so there was a couple of things there that she was talking about that were interesting about sort of manufacturing fuels and building materials. Um, but there's other stuff that apparently that you can do, like you were talking about making fizzy juice with the carbon. Apparently you can also make polymers for shoes, which is quite cool, ah. um, using this captured carbon. So the polymers are almost like plastics, yep. but you know you, you can make them with CO2 or that's part of the process. I thought that was quite interesting. You know, once we start doing all of this carbon capture and we do have this excess carbon dioxide supply, um, what other industrial processes will be developed that will utilise that carbon? So developing plastics is a really good example. We've obviously been making fizzy drinks for a long time, but I'm hopeful that more processes will be developed that will be able to use that carbon in the future. I also spoke to Professor of Chemical Engineering, Susana Garcia-Lopez. So she's working in energy and clean coal technologies. um, And she's also the Associate Director in Carbon Capture and Storage at the Research Centre for Carbon Solutions. So her work is all about accelerating the transition of energy and industrial sectors towards this low carbon economy. So here she is explaining a little bit about the collaborative cross-disciplinary approach that they take at the university. In order to deploy novel and transformative carbon capture solutions, the different disciplines have been working pretty much on the in, in isolation. And what we are doing here is we are bridging the gap between uh, those uh, different disciplines by combining all the expertise together. What this allows us is to accelerate the deployment of these of these novel technologies and get to commercialization at a much faster pace, which is what we are currently needing in order to achieve our climate targets. She's talking a little bit about this collaborative work that they do at Heriot Watt, and she's part of this research centre for Carbon Solutions. So it's internationally leading, it's a huge research centre, and it's linked up with a bunch of different universities and organisations. Heriot Watt, this department is working with people in Switzerland, Norway, US, um, Sweden. So it is, it's cool. And, and as part of the um, Scottish Centre for Carbon Solutions as well, that's a partnership between the Geological Survey, Heriot Watt University, the University of Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Strathclyde. So, you know, this is really important sort of global work that they're doing to try and, you know, solve such a massive issue. So... Robbie, how do these processes actually work? You know, how do you take carbon dioxide out of a waste stream? Okay, so like I have to admit, I have no idea really. I was so confused when they were talking to me about (laughs) the technology because it's so technical. But, you know, I guess that shows why, you know, this is a collaborative approach approach between lots of different disciplines and why, you know, some of the top sort of um, engineers and sort of earth sciences are working on this. Mm. But essentially, they use different types of material, like you were talking about these sponges, um, which CO2 sticks to. 
So we can have a listen now to Susanna giving us a little bit more of an idea. At the Research Center for Carbon Solutions, we actually focus on different carbon capture technologies. One of them is uh, the one based on solid materials to capture or retain that carbon dioxide. So the basics of the process is that the CO2 or the carbon dioxide interacts with the material and gets retained on its surface. So it's basically a separation process what we are talking about. So we conduct research both on the material side, but also on the process side in order to accelerate these type of technologies. Apparently you can use stuff like lithium hydroxide or other strong bases. So there's like soda lime, sodium hydroxide, potassium hydroxide. These don't really mean that much to me, but basically you'll know so much more about this, but you're able to remove the carbon dioxide by the chemical reaction that happens. So apparently they used lithium hydroxide in the Apollo space program and that removed carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, so there's these two different approaches that you really want to kind of combine to make these sort of super carbon sponges. So you can sort of physically absorb, like how your kitchen sponge at home will absorb water. You know, these are like really, really porous materials. So they will kind of physically suck it up and keep it in their pores, um, just as your kitchen sponge at home does. In addition to that, as Susanna was just explaining, you can chemically react the carbon dioxide with materials as well as the sort of physical absorption um, so that you're doing both physical and chemical capture of this storage and usually the approach is to use both sort of phenomena to be able to capture your carbon as well as possible. Here's Susanna explaining their work in a little bit more detail, the research that they're doing at Heriot Watt. This is a truly pioneering and internationally leading research effort that we are conducting at RCCS and Heritage University. So it is a completely novel approach what we are doing here. We are developing a platform to tailor make cost efficient technologies for a range of different CO2 sources and CO2 uses or destinations. So this approach hasn't been conducted before. The idea here is that in the world we are currently living, we will need to decarbonize uh, our energy uh, and, and industrial sectors. And what that means is that we will need to capture CO2 from many different sources. And equally, and depending, for instance, on where we are geographically, we can do many different things with that CO2. We can either send it to underground storage formation, so we just bury it deep underground so it can't escape anymore into the atmosphere, or alternatively, for instance, we can use it as a chemical vector. What that means is that you can um, use that CO2 to synthesize valuable products. Yeah, so exactly as Susanna says, after you've captured your carbon dioxide, you need to get it out of your materials again and then use it in something useful or store it underground. Um, so just like we do with our kitchen sponge at home, we have to apply pressure to the materials to release that CO2 um, and then we can do useful things with it. Or worst case scenario, bury it deep underground. <laughs> Let's get a bit more of an idea of this matching process that they use in their department. 
depending on where you are capturing your CO2 from and where you are sending your CO2 to, you will need a different process and a different material. So what we are doing at Heriot World University is we are providing the tools that are needed to identify what's the best and optimal carbon capture solution for each of those scenarios. There was an interesting anecdote that Susanna told me about, which was one of their PhD students that was, he was presenting at this FameLab competition, which is, I think, where you basically try and sum up your research, like a very sort of technical research in as a simple way as possible. And he was the world winner of this competition. And he basically, what he did was he compared their project to the Tinder app. So they were using a matching exercise to identify the best material to separate that material from the CO2 source, taking into consideration materials, cost, environmental aspect, all of these things. So it's sort of like dating for materials and CO2 sources in industrial processes or something like that. (laughs) How romantic. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good analogy, though, I think, because, um, you know, the Tinder app is entirely software based, right? But it's matching things that are in the real, the physical world, as it were. Um, And these types of ways of using computers to do the sort of calculations for us in a way to you know to make those links between the materials and the processes that they're needed for it's a much 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 faster way than if a PhD student were to sit in their lab and you know by hand go through each one and do those calculations so the algorithms that they're um, writing for that kind of thing are so valuable for saving us time and coming up with the best solutions theoretically and then we can test them in the real world. They use this um, sort of accessible, free and open platform to run these sort of matching processes. We can have a little bit of a listen to that just now. What we are doing as part of our projects is to develop this open access platform. So uh, all the researchers across the world will have uh, all the information they need in order to um, to to uh, use our our methods, our tools, uh, with the ultimate goal to again accelerate the implementation of the technologies. So there is a concerted agreement uh, in the world that we do need to get to our uh, ultimate goals of getting to net zero fa- at a faster uh, pace. And in order to do so, unless we share our knowledge and we make it available to the whole research community and a stakeholder community, we will not get there. So that's a truly huge challenge to get everything in an open access platform, but that's indeed part of what we are doing at RCCS. It's such an important part of what we were talking about earlier, like the kind of collaborative nature of this type of work, you know, being able to share your work with anyone around the world um, is really, really important. Um, And it's fantastic that they've developed this open access platform that others can then benefit from and work on as well. We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watts School of Engineering and Physical Sciences in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate about how being at the university is giving them new and brilliant opportunities out there in the big, bad and scary real world. This is Thomas Hugan speaking from the absolutely stunning island of Orkney. 
Orkney is this tiny archipelago in the north of Scotland. It's very remote and very uh, wild. Windy, loads of waves. Amongst the, the strongest tidal flow of, of the UK, if not the world. That run up to like 10 miles per hour. But it's also a very pioneering and innovative environment for renewable energy. And it's been for the past 15, 20 years. And I studied the renewable energy development course in Orkney, in the Hayatwat campus called ICIT. I was a mechanical engineer and I studied engineering all my all my students' life, really. So when I, I selected this course, it's because it offered teaching in technological aspects of renewable energy, but it also offered teachings in the environmental and marine biology-based political aspects of energy generation as a whole, and I thought it was really interesting. My job for this company is to do all the planning and the risk assessment of all the, all the work we do at sea. We are developing um, a floating tidal turbine, 74 meters long and about 700 tons. When you work in the sea, you always discover new issues as you're working along. So it's a lot of live problem solving as well as trying to anticipate as much as you can. If you'd like to start a career in renewable energy, why not check out the Hayatwat courses on the website hw.ac.uk. Thomas Hugon there speaking on the beautiful island of Orkney. What a lucky guy to live in such an amazing place and helping every single day to keep it that way. You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast from Harriet Watt University with Anna Pajajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far, we've been hearing from Susanna Garcia-Lopez and Harithea Haralambos. Still to come, a discussion about COP26, activism and the debate around fossil fuels. Now, I spoke to Susanna before the climate conference in Glasgow and COP26 has actually been and gone by now, but I think her points remain relevant to the debates that we've been hearing. Personally, for me, it's a great opportunity for the team and for Hirgood University to showcase what we do and outreach the information and the outcomes from our projects to the wider community. So it's important for the world to understand what is currently being done, what are the challenges we are facing, uh, and how can we solve those challenges all together, and how we can get there at a much faster rate. I guess this shows that, you know, how tapped into you know, sort of global conversations around technology for carbon capture storage they are, you know, presenting at COP26 mm. and also just the discussions that are going on there. Net zero is such a key part of both Paris and, and now Glasgow. And I've been in Glasgow for COP26. I know it's finished mm. by the time this goes to air, but it is quite net zero has been criticised because it sort of maybe detracts from conversations about stopping fossil fuel emissions. But as well, carbon capture is quite controversial within the environmental movement. So I think we maybe need to discuss that a little bit about why that is. And we, we touched upon this earlier, but it's basically because 
some people say that these technologies are perspective, which they, they are a lot of them. So we shouldn't be developing carbon capture in case it works as a sort of gamble on the fact that these technologies will exist in the future. So they keep burning fossil fuels and then actually the technologies never come to pass that could capture the carbon. So I don't know what you think about that, Anna, but it's certainly a, it's not without controversy. Definitely. I think we risk you know, resting on our laurels a little bit if we think, oh, we can just remove the carbon from the atmosphere. Um, but unfortunately, it's not that simple. You know, if we could do that, we obviously would. <laughs> um, and these technologies do exist. You know, we're not talking about um, technologies that we are yet to develop and yet to deploy. We can do it today. The problem mostly appears to be cost. You know, the cost of scrubbing carbon out of waste streams and out of the atmosphere is very, very high. So as with all these things, I think economics is so sort of prevalent as a part of the issue. And I think one way that people are looking at carbon capture and storage technologies is just a way to buy us some time, right? 2050 is less than 30 years away. That is a blink of an eye in terms of, you know, geological time. And so the urgency is really with us. And so I think carbon capture enables us to not take our foot off the accelerator at all in terms of getting these greener technologies out there, but it will help us to get there in a safe and fair and sustainable way. I, I, that's how I view it anyway. But I, I do totally understand the opposite arguments as well of, you know, we, we cannot afford to take our foot off the accelerator. And so I can I can see both sides. Mm. And I don't think we can afford to be too idealistic in saying that because we should stop burning fossil fuels, we shouldn't develop these technologies because yes. these technologies are very important as a part of sort of suite of measures that we will use to stop global warming. And like you were saying, like we can afford to discount these, you know, very relevant technologies. I think as well, though, what you said earlier about, you know, even if we switch to completely renewable energy tomorrow, all of the stuff that we've already emitted is still going to cause us a bit of a bother. Right. So so we, we need to be just throwing every single bit of technology that we can at this problem in the hope that we will mitigate the worst of climate change to come. I asked Susanna about where she gets hope in this climate. For me, the hope is coming from the fact that this is a very well-recognized problem. I think the world is very aware and increasingly aware of the huge challenge that uh, our energy systems are currently facing. And of course, all of us know that energy is central to everything that we do. And we also know that our energy demand is increasingly higher. So for the current society, it's a huge challenge to ensure that we can provide that energy in an efficient way, in an affordable way and in a sustainable way. We are all aware of the huge challenge, but the hope comes from the fact that we are all willing to come together in order to solve it. So certainly the research community is really coming together to, to, to try to address that as quickly as possible because we are very aware that that's what the society needs and that's what our world needs. Now back to Harathea and she's explaining here in line with what we've been talking about is 
like why the work of carbon capture storage technologies are crucial alongside the reduction of fossil fuels. So reducing fossil fuel use is really important, but also really difficult. And even if we work quickly to limit greenhouse gas emissions to achieve net zero, the carbon dioxide, the vast majority of the emissions uh, that is already in the atmosphere will influence our climate for thousands of years to come. So as a chemical engineer and a scientist, I work on the design and development of technological solutions that can economically and efficiently remove carbon dioxide before it's been released into the atmosphere or removing it directly from the atmospheric air. You know, we've been talking about the materials that they've been working on, we've been talking around these processes, but... As chemical engineers, you know, how do they actually go about figuring out what the best process and what the best material is to use? So I guess this comes back to them learning Python and learning how to code. Mm. But basically, they use these huge computational methods um, and these enable them to work out the optimal design of pilot scale facilities. So, you know, how to then take that out in the real world and do it on a sort of pilot scale to work out if it works in practice. So, yeah, it's very... I don't know, nerdy, hard to understand, difficult, technical, but so, so important as well at the same time, you know? Yeah, even though these computer models might take months to perform, you know, you can, you're screening basically all of these different materials and structures. And so it would take you years and years and years to go through physically in the lab and test every single one for, you know, how much carbon it can absorb. But by doing it with computers, they can just rattle through all these different permutations of materials. Um, and then they'll just select the very, very best ones, it sounds like, to take through to the lab and to do that more hands-on experimentation. Exactly. And I think it shows that we're sort of moving towards a world where everything exists sort of in code or in silico or in a computer. You know, there is a sort of digital version of everything that can sort of, mm. you know, help you to understand the, the complexities of real life. This is an area of research that is very well suited to this type of computational modelling, because what you're doing is you're looking at what, what they're doing in their computers is they're saying, OK, here's my material structure at an atomic level let's say a molecule of CO2 came along near it, what would happen? And they run the simulations of how those atoms interact at really, really small scales. Um, and then once they see, okay, yes, this CO2 molecule will attach to this material because of these reasons, then they will scale it up a little bit and see what happens if you bring multiple molecules to it and, and so forth. And then once they're confident that at least theoretically these materials would interact in a positive way, then they can go on to make them in the lab and test it in real life. So finally, here's Harithea on what it's like to work in such an important and crucial field. It feels like you do something very important. Important not only, uh, of course, for yourself, but for the society. Um, and it's something that it will always be urgent yeah, it feels really exciting uh, to work in this field. Yeah, I mean, I can understand why, because, you know, carbon capture and storage and the work that's going on at Harriet Watt University, you know, this stuff is going to be absolutely crucial to us reaching net zero by 2050 in the UK. But also, you know, 
broader than that, broader than just these kind of political goals, the outcome of it is to try and mitigate the very worst effects of climate change. And that's something that affects everyone globally. So what greater impact can you have as a scientist than hopefully improving the lives of people around the world, right? That's that's the end goal, right? That's That's the best that you could possibly hope for. Yeah, when you consider it within the sort of global struggle to reach net zero and the sort of science and the technology and this sort of movement, you know, towards a low carbon economy, like literally the planet's at stake. So, you know, it must feel so exciting working in that field. Thanks for listening to A Future Made. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made. Or you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk.